Open up, tell me when. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll start in chapter 3. It seems like the shorter the book, the more I want to say about it, so it's not working well. It's like an inverse proportion here. I don't know what's going on. Uh, but I counted. I think there's like 13 or 14 weeks left, you know, before we finish the whole Bible. Um, so maybe then the rapture will come. Uh, but uh, as you see on your sheet, three chapters, 47 verses, just a little over 1,000 words, um, 2 Thessalonians 3. The author is very much Paul. He's very deliberate to say that he's the author. You'll notice in 2 Peter 3.17, he says the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. So Paul signed this letter himself. He didn't want there to be any doubt that he wrote this letter, which we'll talk about why in a second. He writes it probably about a year, maybe, after 1 Thessalonians. Very close to 1 Thessalonians, he writes 2 Thessalonians. So maybe around 54 AD, we said 1 Thessalonians was 53, 54. So this one's probably around 54 or so. Uh, And the real reason for the book and the reason why he signs it with his own hand and makes a point of saying, this is my signature, is if you look at 2 Thessalonians 2.2, you notice what was going on, what was circulating around that time. He says, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So apparently a forged letter supposedly from Paul, had been circulating. So somebody had faked a letter from the Apostle Paul, and Paul is writing so much on the heels of his first letter to kind of debunk this fraudulent letter that's been going on. There were a couple of things that this fraudulent letter worried the brethren about. Number one, the brethren in Thessalonica had become distressed that they had missed the rapture. They thought they missed the rapture. They thought they missed the Lord's coming for his church. He talked about it in the first letter, and they're going through tribulation, and they're like, huh, did we miss it? Somebody was making them feel like they missed it. And they were afraid now that they were passing through the great tribulation. You know, they're going through persecution. They think they missed the rapture. They're afraid they're going through tribulation. That's what he's trying to quell and trying to put their minds at ease. Now, I'm just going to go off on a hobby horse, but... We still have in the body of Christ and among so-called professing Christians many people that want to scare the church into thinking they're going into the Great Tribulation. All right? Stephen Anderson is one of them. All right? So you might like that guy on YouTube. He's a nut job, but uh, he knows a lot of Bible verses. But he put out this whole documentary many years ago called After the Tribulation, which made his great case, he thought, that the church goes through the tribulation, and all you pansies that think there's a rapture, you just created this fake doctrine because you're not tough like him to go through the tribulation. You want to go through the tribulation, bro? Have at it. I'm out of here. That's what the Bible says. That's not a matter of being tough or not tough. It's just a matter of reading the Bible. It's not a 19th century doctrine. It's a Bible doctrine because I read 1 Thessalonians. All right? That's how I know it's, we're not appointed unto wrath. So uh, I'm not trying to call the brother out, but the Bible says mark those people that cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which we have learned and avoid them. So he's a big YouTube sensation, or at least he used to be. And uh, some of the bots on YouTube right now might be blowing a gasket. Uh, but anyway, uh, there's two real reasons why he puts their mind at ease by pointing to two precursors for the rapture that I just want to touch on as introduction. Look at verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians. He says, um, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, the day of Christ, except there come a a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So there's two things there that he talks about would have to happen before the rapture. Number one, a great falling away, a profound apostasy in the church and for the church. Unfortunately, the church age doesn't end strong. We end making Jesus sick. That's how the church age ends, and you're living it right now. You're living in Laodicea. Now, if you trace that phrase, fall away, It's connected in Luke chapter 8 to people falling away from God's word. Luke 8, 13, he talks about people that fall away from the word. And uh, the Laodicean church is the last church, right? It's the church that makes Jesus sick. You know what might be making him sick? 
because that last church is putting something in his mouth that he never said. Saying that this is what God said, this is what the Bible says, and he's like, I never said that. I didn't write that Bible. I'm not behind that translation. And you say, where did that church start? I would date the beginning of the Laodicean church in, in 1881. 1881 is the publication of the revised version in England, which was the first version in the litany of versions we've had since then that undermine and try to take away the majesty and the authority of the King James Bible. So 1881 is the beginning of Laodicea, and I would say that is where the church really starts falling away, because the last hundred or so years, you know, 140-something years since that's happened, has been just a rapid slide. From 1600 to 1800, it was the church of the open door. The gospel ran around the world several times. We read about the heroes, men like Hudson Taylor and John Patton, and in all these people that we read about, Jonathan Goforth, uh, and, and, and all these people that we kind of write books about are all from that time. 1881 happens, and the church just starts di- just falling apart since then. And it's really because we're drinking bad water, and there's just bad water feeding the church. And that's a big part. So there'd be a falling away first. Second, he says, and that man of sin be revealed. Now, this is a slightly controversial topic. A lot of these are going to be controversial tonight. So I'm not going to die on any of these hills, but I'll give you my two cents because I have the microphone. Somehow it seems that before the day of Christ comes, there's some revelation about who the man of sin is, who might end up becoming the son of perdition, i.e. the Antichrist. So let's go to John chapter 6. You say, that sounds radical. You mean God's going to point out who the Antichrist might be before the rapture, before we leave? Huh? Huh? I didn't see that in my Christian movie, and I read the whole series of Left Behind. I mean, well, let's just look at the Bible, because Jesus Christ has a precedent. At his first coming, he pointed out who the betrayer was more than once. John chapter 6, verse 70 Now, in John chapter 6, verse 66, a lot of the disciples have have gone away from Jesus. That's interesting. The disciples have fallen away from Jesus in John 6, 6, 6, and then in John 6, 70, to a close, faithful minority of disciples that stuck with Jesus, he says, have not I chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? This spake he, he spake of Judas Iscariot. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. So he tells his closest disciples, one of them is a devil beforehand. He revealed it to them. They didn't all get it. They didn't figure it out. But there was some revelation. How about John chapter 13? Look at verse 26. John 13, 26. This is the Last Supper. Uh, Jesus answered, because John has asked him, who's the one that's going to betray you? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop, a little piece of bread. And when I had dipped it, and when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So in John 13, 26, Jesus Christ reveals to John the identity of the Antichrist, the identity of the betrayer, the identity of that son of perdition, because Judas is called the son of perdition. So it's interesting he does it in John 13, 26, which is all a multiple of 13. 13, 26 is two 13s. You've got three 13s right there. That's, I'm sure that's an accident. And John is a type of the church. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved, like Christ loved the church. We've talked about that. And John was lying on Jesus' breast, verse 25. John was close. Maybe not everybody's going to realize, but maybe the ones that are close will realize, hey, that's the guy. That might be the guy. And notice verse 28. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto them, for some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Nobody suspected Judas because he had the bag, because he had the money. Just going to throw this out. Do you know anyone who looks like he follows Jesus and has all the money? Do you know that someone who likes to dip a piece of bread in wine and eat it maybe every week? Just think about it, would you? 
might hurt you. But just think about it. Let's go to, let's keep on here. Just, just some thoughts on there. Um, so 1 Thessalonians is the book of the rapture. Your sheet says that. 2 Thessalonians is the book of the revelation. 1 Thessalonians is the book of the appearing. 2 Thessalonians is the book of the advent. 1 Thessalonians is to the saints who fell asleep in Christ to tell them the saints who fall asleep in Christ who die before the rapture will still share in Christ's coming. 2 Thessalonians is the saints who are alive and remain will not be overtaken by the great tribulation. Like that's what they're both saying. 1 Thessalonians says the coming of the Lord would be sudden. But 2 Thessalonians clarifies that sudden doesn't mean immediate. So we have to wait patiently for him. Um, key verse, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. I'm just getting warmed up. 2 Thessalonians 1. Uh, key verses 7 and 8. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The key message then is the coming of the Lord, not for his people, that was 1 Thessalonians, with his people, 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we go up. 2 Thessalonians, we come down. Uh, so the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as our returning Lord. Now, on your sheet, the breakdown is great, and it's going to guide our study tonight. Encouragement and persecutions, chapter 1. Enlightenment about the Lord's coming, chapter 2. Exhortations to Christian living in chapter 3. And what I'm going to do is just cherry-pick some thoughts. I'm actually going to cover almost every verse of the book, but I'm going to go just skim-code it really fast, and you can do a deeper dive on your own if anything grabs your fancy. So let's start with this idea here of the encouragement the Lord gives us in chapter 1 in persecution. Now you see, you see go to uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, and look at verse 4. We ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Remember, the Thessalonian church was enduring serious persecution. They were taking their licks, guys. Remember from last week, they're afflicted, they're facing pain, hardship, anguish, their own countrymen are betraying them. So they, they're going through it. And verse 5, he says which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. The Lord is telling them, I'm letting you go through persecution to prove you. You see that? He said, God is not asleep. This is not an accident. The devil didn't overpower me. You haven't caught a case of devilish fleas, right? You didn't get too close to somebody with the devil and he jumped on you. No, God has ordained this. He said it's a righteous judgment. There's two takeaways from that. Number one, we must remember that God doesn't make any mistakes. If you're doing the best you know how and you're still taking your lumps, God is proving you for something. God is testing you for something. God is trying you for something. The Bible talks about the trial of your faith being more precious than that of gold which perisheth. So God's refining you. I know we only think about right now, I don't want to feel this, I don't want to go through this, I don't want to be here. I get it. But God's like, just take the 10,000 foot view for a second. I'm working out something bigger. I haven't forgotten you. That's the first big takeaway. It's a righteous judgment. God didn't make a mistake when he put you in the furnace. And number two, we must reconcile that there is a purpose even to our sufferings. You are called to the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul said, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings and be made conformable unto his death. Why? That you might be counted worthy. That if you go through something, you'll be counted worthy for the kingdom that God wants you to inherit. So there's a reason for the suffering. Verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing when God to recompense tribulation, time of trouble, to them that trouble you. <laughs> See, there's going to be a payday someday. It's not forever. It's for a moment. It's just for a little while. But the Lord's going to recompense trouble to the world in the tribulation. All that trouble they've given you, all those hard times at work, 
all those vicious, licentious things coming across your television screen, all those things they've done to try to turn you aside, those governmental policies, those ordinances of man that try to make it hard to worship, hard to preach, hard to just live an honest, godly life. That's why we're supposed to pray that we might live a godly life in all honesty and stuff like that. But God says, don't worry. I'll settle the books. I'll settle the score. Vengeance is mine. I will repay saith the Lord. Not you. I'll take care of it. Verse 7. And to you who are troubled, because they were troubled. Brethren, there are people all over this world that are troubled. I don't mean troubled because the tax rate's going up or OPEC says we're going to raise the rates of oil. I'm not saying those kinds of troubles. I mean troubles like my kid's gotten murdered. I can't find my daughter. She got abducted by somebody because we were worshiping together. We got to find a place to hide in a cave with our Bibles. Like there's trouble all over the world that you and I don't know anything about. We think because they closed the Duncan on our way to work, we're experiencing the great tribulation. No. How about you need a houseboat, you know, because you can't worship in your town anymore because they'll stone you to death. Like, that's real trouble that's happening in real places all around the world right now. So these people are troubled. God says, if you're troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. While the world is experiencing the revelation and Jesus Christ splits the eastern sky and comes to bring that wrath with him, you know what he says? You're going to be at rest. You can just rest because the trouble for you will be all over and the trouble for them will have just begun. And look what he says in verse 8. Here's how he comes. This is how you know this isn't the rapture. It's the revelation. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. God's church doesn't go through the great tribulation. That's not appointed to you. We're not appointed unto wrath. You see that? We don't experience that. Are you going to experience that? Verse 8, you experience fire? (laughs) Jesus Christ experienced the fire for you. Hallelujah. Vengeance? He's not coming to take vengeance on you. Who's he doing that to? It's right there in the verse. I don't know why the guys on YouTube can't read it themselves. I guess because they're trying to make money off you and sell a video. I don't know, but it says right there, on them that know not God. I know God. Do you know God? (laughs) And that obey not the gospel. Hey, have you obeyed the gospel? I've obeyed the gospel. He said, no, I believe. That's the gospel. Romans 16 talks about the obedience of faith. God said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I obeyed that command. I'm saved. Are you saved? You obeyed the gospel. It was the obedience of faith. It wasn't, that, that's what it is. And that's who's taking their lumps there. People that were not saved and people that don't know God. That's not you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, who shall be punished? With everlasting destruction? Is that you? You're going to face punishment and everlasting destruction? I'm not. I'm supposed to inherit everlasting life, everlasting bliss, joy, peace, fellowship, union with my bridegroom. I'm not facing that. John 3.16 says, I'll never perish if I believed on the Son of God. Who's getting that? He says, from the presence of the Lord? They're going to be driven from his presence? You look across the page at 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It says when he comes back at the end of the verse, we shall ever be with the Lord. I'm going to be with him forever when he comes back for me. I'm not getting driven from his presence ever again. I'm going to be one with him. So it's just ridiculous. Verse 10. When he, now when he comes down, right? He comes down and we come down with him. It says when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. The church is returning with Jesus Christ in glory and to bring glory to Jesus Christ. We're going to come back, and it says his saints are going to be glorified like Jesus is glorified. We'll have gone through the judgment seat of Christ. We'll have gotten our reward. We're coming back with him. We've got his glory. We're coming back to reign with him. We're coming back, and guess what? It says, and to be admired in all them that believe. So somebody's going to look at you and say, wow, that's quite a savior you got. (laughs) They're going to see you reflecting the light that Jesus Christ gave you as your reward, and they're going to be blown away looking at you and admiring your savior. You say, why? Because our testimony among you is believed. 
How do I get that reward? Believe what this book tells you, especially what Paul told you. He says, what I'm telling you, church, believe it. It'll keep you straight. It'll keep you going in the right direction. You notice that little phrase at the end of verse 10? In that day. Always refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In that day. How could you possibly, unless you're either an idiot or you have an agenda, how could you possibly make the day of Christ and the day of the Lord the same? They're not the same. Not just because they're spelled different, because the Bible always treats them differently. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Like I said, I'm doing some low-level flying here, so just hold on. Philippians 2 says, um, mm -hmm. Where am I? Philippians. Philippians 2 verse 15. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The day of Christ is always applying to the church. The day of Christ is happening to the church in heaven. It's a time when we might be able to rejoice, right? He wants to rejoice. There will be some regret, but it's a time when we're supposed to rejoice. Our, his intention is to make us rejoice. When he gives out those rewards, he wants us to rejoice with him. So the day of Christ is involving the rapture of the church, the judgment seat of Christ, events that are primarily happening in heaven to the church that result in hopefully a reward that causes us to rejoice. Go to Isaiah chapter 2. The day of the Lord is never that. Ever that. The day of the Lord is never a time of rejoicing. It's never a time in heaven. The day of the Lord is always, without exception, I'm turning you now to Isaiah 2, verse 12, which is the first mention of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is always a revelation of the Lord to the world, to Israel, on earth, and it's not a time of rejoicing, it's a time of revenge. So you got me now? Day of Christ, church in heaven rejoicing. Day of the Lord, Israel and the world on earth, God getting his revenge. Totally different. Isaiah 2.12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty and upon every one that is lifted up and he shall be brought low. That's the day of the Lord. Totally different than we just read about hoping that we'd have some rejoicing at the day of Christ. They're different events, right? So, go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. If you make them the same, you make your Bible turn into a bowl of oatmeal. And you can't rightly divide oatmeal. So you got to recognize some divisions. That's one of them. That's a big one. Um, let's go back to... Now, let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2. So the Lord first... It gives them some encouragement in their persecutions. You haven't missed the rapture. Here's the things to look for. You're coming back with me. It's going to be great. Right? Second thing is the enlightenment. Then he says, you want to know what the Lord's coming is really going to be like? He sheds a little bit of light on that. 2 Thessalonians 2. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Now, for all the legalists in the room, especially our friends on YouTube, well, rapture is not in the Bible. Yet, yeah, either is the word Bible, okay? So, keep your pharisaical spirit in your back pocket, okay, buddy? All right, chorus book isn't in the Bible. Microphone's not in the Bible. There's all kind of stuff you use and believe are not in the Bible, just because the word's not in the Bible. But the event is in the Bible. So if you don't want to call it the rapture, you know what you can call it? are gathering together unto him. Because that's in the Bible. So we might have attributed the word rapture because it means to be consumed with something, to be enwrapped or taken away with something or caught up with something. So if you want to get real specific and say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible, okay, but the event's in the Bible. It's called our gathering together unto him. That event is in the Bible. It happens when he comes. It's right there in verse 1. Verse 2. So in verse 1, we're gone. 
So what a lot of verse 2, chapter 2, is about the great tribulation. He says, don't be soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. The spirit of deception in the world has always wanted to steal our hope about this day. There's a spirit in the world that wants to steal the hope of the church that we're getting out of here, we're getting delivered, that blessed hope. It's always trying to steal it. It's being stolen today by YouTube bots, the guys that make videos that just want to twist the Bible around and try to make Matthew apply to you when it never really does. And it was happening 2,000 years ago in the church. That tells me that nothing's changed. That people are trying to put the church through the Great Tribulation to scare us, to make us become preppers, to get us to man up and buy our powdered food and hunker down. The Bible says, don't hunker down. Get out there and be a light to the world. But they want you to hunker down and watch my YouTube video about how to turn your flashlight into a machine gun and all this stuff, and that's not given you in the Bible. I think it's wise maybe to have some food and stuff. I'm not saying there's not wisdom in that. But this whole idea, I just can't find it in the Bible. I can't find it in the Bible that I'm supposed to get all this stuff and just build my bunker and get my guns and if anybody comes to my house begging for food, I'm going to have to shoot them because when they find out that you've got food stored in your house and they're hungry, they're going to come knocking on your door and you're going to have to either defend it with a gun or give it to them. So put your brain on before you just get caught up in all this prepping stuff. There's wisdom to it, but let your moderation be known unto all men. I'm not saying it's all foolish, but let your moderation be known to all men. But these guys, these, you know, anti-New World Order guys, you know, we're going to crush the new, the answer to 1984 is 1776. I like it. It sounds good. I enjoy that. It's something in me resonates with that. I want to eat a hamburger after I hear sayings like that. But the Bible says, love your enemy, preach the gospel to every creature. The Bible's not American. I hate saying it as much as you hate hearing it. The Bible's not American. The Bible says meekness, long-suffering, <laughs> uh, you know, get out there, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, be a light, etc., etc. There's wisdom in that. But the point I'm trying to make is this, that there's a spirit in the world that wants to put the church in the tribulation and steal the hope that we're longing for that our bridegroom's going to come and catch us away. So if I said something in the last few minutes that you didn't like, just forget it. But that's the point I want you to take away. That don't let that spirit of deception that wants to thrust us in the great tribulation and thrust us into all this agony and woe, that's not Bible. Verse 3. Let no man deceive you, even Stephen Anderson, by any means. For that day shall not come, except that come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Watch it. So that he, as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In the great tribulation, the Antichrist is going to sit on the mercy seat in the temple. I don't, I don't see that happening right now. In fact, I don't see a temple right now. That means at some point before that happens, there needs to be a temple in Jerusalem for the Antichrist to defile. There is none now. There's going to have to be one. I know a lot of the Jews say they got plans. They could put it up in what, like 48 hours? They could put one up real fast. They got it ready, but that temple is going to have to go up before the Antichrist can walk in and defile it. Now, if you go to Matthew 24, what is he talking about here? When that, when that Antichrist walks into that temple and defiles it, Jesus Christ told them about that in Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is all about the tribulation, by the way. At least most of it is. In Matthew 24, 15, he tells his Jewish disciples, he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. This is the abomination of de desolation spoken by Daniel. When the Antichrist walks in to the holiest of all and sits where God is supposed to sit, that's the abomination of desolation. That's like the ultimate wickedness. Now go to Daniel 11. I'll show you where it's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Because it happened already and will happen in the future. Daniel 11. That's how prophecy is. There's, a, there's an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. Daniel 11, verse 31. 
It says this about the, uh, the king of the north who was a literal person in the past and also a, a title for the Antichrist in the future. Daniel 11.31 says, An arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. Shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. History tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes in the past defiled the temple, walked in there and possibly offered like a pig or something on that altar to really defile the Jewish temple. That's what we know. That was a forerunner of the Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. He defiled the temple in the past, but that points to a future fulfillment, a true fulfillment, when the Antichrist will defile the temple in the future. So you see, there's the past and there's the future. Does that make sense? Now go to 2 Thessalonians back there. Again, I'm just hitting things like a buckshot. Just take what you can and re-listen if you need to or correct me later. 2 Thessalonians 2.6. 2 Thessalonians 2.6 says, And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Now there's three mentions of the word revealed in chapter 2. Because there are three revealings of the Antichrist. That's what I think. And if everything Satan does is an imitation of Jesus Christ, then there should be three revealings. Because Jesus Christ is revealed three times. Which means the Antichrist is going to want to copy that and be revealed three times. The first time the word revealed shows up, it's in verse 3. You know, Jesus Christ was revealed first at his birth to a very small group of people, his family and some animals. The Antichrist, perhaps, will be revealed to a very small group first. We read about John 6, right, where a very small group of disciples were told, a very small group of the family was told, this is the guy, he's a devil. Just, just throwing it out there. Verse 6 is the second mention of revealed. Jesus Christ is revealed to his family at birth, then he's revealed to the nation at the age of 30. At his baptism, he's revealed to the nation. John says that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, am I come baptizing with water? That dove descends on him. That light comes. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. That's God revealing to the nation that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. I wonder if there was a second revealing of the Antichrist. I do read about Judas being revealed at the table to John. Just throwing things out there. Then verse 8, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. And then shall that wicked, capital W, full manifestation, be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. There's the third and final revealing. Jesus Christ will be revealed one more time, won't he? He's going to be revealed to the world at his revelation. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall behold him. And, the kin and, and those tribes shall mourn because of him. They're not going to mistake him in that day. He's going to have a revelation to the world. I think the Antichrist has a revelation to the world coming too. Capital W. When the wicked prophet, when the man of sin, his majesty the devil, steps out onto the world stage, he'll reveal himself to the world. Just like Jesus Christ has three revealings, the Antichrist has and will have three revealings. Let's go look at verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The mystery of iniquity is the opposite of the mystery of godliness. We believe in the mystery of godliness. Great was the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, right? The mystery of godliness is God humbling himself to become a man. God Almighty, because that's who Jesus Christ is, God Almighty, 1 Timothy 3.16, changed in almost every new version of the Bible. God, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God, 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 was manifest in the flesh. The mighty God humbled himself to take on a human body. The mystery of iniquity it's the opposite of godliness. It's the opposite of the mystery of godliness. It's Satan exalting himself in a human body. It's the opposite. God humbles himself in a human body. He comes down. Satan lifts himself up in a human body. The Antichrist. Now, 
I'm going to get myself in trouble. Verse 7. Only he who now letteth or prevents or restrains will let until he be taken out of the way. Who is the he that is taken out of the way? Now, there's two schools of thought on it. One is, he could be the Holy Spirit. Makes a lot of sense. And he could be that restraining power that restrains evil through the church. And the, and the, and the Antichrist hasn't fully revealed himself because the, the Holy Spirit, through the church, through the body of Christ, is holding that back. That's a very valid interpretation. The other interpretation is, the he could be the man of sin that restrains or goes before the full manifestation of the Antichrist. That he's here now, but when he's taken out of the way, the son of perdition will be manifest to the world. So it's a great study. I don't think any of us will really solve it. I will give you my two cents. And friends watching on YouTube, I'm not picking a fight. I could be wrong, but I'll give you my two cents very briefly. I don't think it's the Holy Spirit. And I know my pastor teaches it's the Holy Spirit. I, I don't see it. I, I, I don't, it's okay. We could disagree on some things. It's okay and still be charitable to each other. I don't think it's that for a couple of quick reasons. Second Thessalonians 2 is not about the Holy Spirit or the church. If context is king, the context of the chapter is about the great tribulation. We're gone in verse 1. Look at 6 and 7. I'm a bit of a grammar nut, so I look at the words and I follow the pronouns and I get into pronouns and antecedents. You could think I'm a nerd, but that's just how I'm wired. In verse 6 he says, And ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. There's a what that is holding back the he. The what is the he is the man, of, is the wicked, is the son of perdition. What's the what? Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. For is a conjunction that connects those two sentences. He says, the what that's holding back the he to me, if I just follow the sentence, is the mystery of iniquity. That just like Jesus Christ was manifest in due time, the Antichrist will be manifest in due time. Nobody's getting ahead of God's schedule on this thing. The what that's restraining and holding him back is just God's timetable. I mean, he tried to manifest himself in Genesis 6, and God said, not so fast, buddy. <laughs> Let's flood this earth out. Right? So the mystery of iniquity doth already work. He says, ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time for because the mystery of iniquity doth already work. This mystery is at work. It's at play just keeping it in God's time. That's assuring that it's always in God's time. Amen. And here's my... Now, if none of that made any sense to you, here's what seals the deal for me. And I, I got in a huge argument with a guy recently online about this. I'm of the persuasion that if I have a question about a word or phrase or thought, I just run it through the Bible. And I let God define it. Whatever it is. If it steps on my theological toes, then i got to change my theology. It says, until he be taken out of the way. So I just took that little phrase, taken out of the way. And I said, where do you use that, God? Who could that be referring to, God? It only appears one time in your Bible, in Job chapter 24. And it's not a good guy that gets taken out of the way. Job chapter 24. And look, I'm, if I'm wrong on this, hey, nothing's changed. <laughs> you know, I'll be the first one to say I was wrong. I'll correct myself from here. I might be wrong. You know, it's like talking about the rapture. We were talking about the rapture before the service started. Who says it's the fall? Some say it's the spring. If it happens on December 12th, I don't care. <laughs> as long as it happens soon. <laughs> I'll be okay with that. Right? Um, it's just everybody's best guess at this point. We all mean well. We all want to find out the truth. As long as we don't lose charity with one another, we can talk about these things and, and, and debate them. Job 24, 13 is talking about a rebel. It's talking about the wicked 
Job 24, 13. They are of those that rebel against the light. Verse 13. They know not the ways thereof, nor abide in the past thereof. The murderer, rising with the light, killeth the poor and needy, and in the night is as a thief. Isn't the devil called a thief and a murderer? Okay. So you get to the end of the chapter. He's talking about these people. You get to verse 24. He's talking about these people that don't know the light. He says in verse 24, They are exalted for a little while, but are gone and brought low. They are taken out of the way as all other and cut off as the tops of the ears of corn. It's a rebel that's taken out of the way. And he likens being taken out of the way to being killed, cut off, like you cut a shock of corn off the top of the thing, as all other, because it's appointed unto men once to die. So somebody's dying there. So the Bible defines taken out of the way as somebody dying, not being caught up, but dying, like other people die. Take it for what it's worth. When you read Revelation 13, that beast has a deadly wound and is healed. If he's going to imitate Jesus Christ, he's got to die and resurrect again. Just throwing it out there. Let's move on. <laughs> That's my thoughts on who the he is. Some of you are just like, what was he talking about? That's fine if you don't get it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's go back there. That's just my two cents. I probably could do more justice if I spent more time on it, but i got to hurry, hurry, hurry. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. All right. You notice in verse 8 and 9, Satan's going to come with power and signs and lying wonders. The Antichrist will work miracles to deceive many in the Great Tribulation. Matthew 24, Mark 13 says, The false Christ shall deceive many. How's he going to deceive many? Look at Revelation 13. You want to see him? You want to see how he does it? It's right there. Revelation 13, start at verse 11. All right, Revelation 13, 11. <clears throat> and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. Interesting. And he had two horns like a lamb, like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused it the earth and them that which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. See that? A deadly wound was healed. You take a stalk of corn, you know how they cut it down. They take a, 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 a scythe or a sickle and they cut it down, Right? Talks about the, the man of sin, that idle shepherd getting wounded by a sword and being healed, perhaps. Just something to think about. And he doeth, 13, 13, oh boy, buckle up. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And verse 14, they see those miracles and they're like, wow. The Antichrist will call down fire from heaven. Why? Because the rebel's going to imitate God. You know what God did in the Old Testament? He called down fire from heaven. Remember the prophets of Baal? Remember Elijah's contest on the Mount Carmel? He said, we're going to prove who the real God is. The one who answers by fire, that's the guy. So what's the Antichrist do? Calls down fire from heaven. And the whole world goes, And in Luke chapter 9, the disciples come back and say, hey, these people in this town, they didn't want to receive us. We'll, should we call down fire from heaven? And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Ye know not what spirit ye are of. Because it's the spirit of Antichrist that wants to call down that fire when it's not time to do that. So that tells me this. Not every miracle you see is of God. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. Go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. Finish it up here. Is that making any sense? Yeah. Hope it's some food for consumption. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, <clears throat> verse 10. Um, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God himself will send the world strong delusion in the Great Tribulation. That's scary. That is scary. Now, in the church age that we're living in, 
The Lord blinds Israel in part. There are some Jewish friends we've got that are saved and sitting in this room in part. But in the tribulation, the Lord blinds the world with strong delusion. I mean, they're, they're blinded by the hardness of their heart, Israel. These people are blinded by God himself. That's some serious delusion. You say, why? Verse 10, verse 12. The why? They love sin more than the Savior. Deceivableness of unrighteousness. Because they receive not the love of the truth. Verse 12. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's what gets people, keeps people from getting saved today. I don't want to give up my bottle. I don't want to give up my dancing. I don't want to give up my sin. I don't want to give up my wickedness. You mean if I get saved, I got to come to church like you, like a holy roller? It's that same spirit. That's why they don't want to receive the truth. What's the what? That's the why of the blinding. The what is in verse 11. They'll believe the devil in the flesh is Jesus Christ. They're going to believe a lie. You say, what's the lie? 1 John 2, 22. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So what are they going to deny? They're going to deny that this Jesus was the Savior. He's going to claim to be God manifest in the flesh. Verse, so you know what that tells me? Real quick. Number one, I'm not wasting my time hiding Bibles in my backyard. I'm not worried about putting the plan of salvation. They're going to be so deluded in the tribulation, you're wasting any time. Don't worry about hiding Bibles. Don't worry about sticking tracks under your bathroom sink. Don't worry about it. You know, when they read that in the tribulation, they're going to think you're just a nut job that left garbage behind. They'll be deluded. They're not going to see it. They're not going to understand it. They're not going to have a heart for it. A very small group of people will follow Jesus Christ in the tribulation time. And number two, don't stop loving the truth. Because in verse 12 and verse 13, the difference between damnation and salvation is your attitude toward the truth. Before you got saved, didn't, you, didn't God start drawing you to want to know what the truth was? You know, Eli's testimony, he wants to know, who is the man on that cross? What happens after you die? You know, I remember my being lost myself, just wanted to know, you know, what happens when I die? I'm going to go to hell. How do I not go to hell? Like this, God starts drawing you and you respond to that little bit of light. Some people don't. I remember being on the phone with a, with a girl I was talking to when I was getting dealt with by God and I was talking about the Bible and I remember, her, and I was excited. I was like, look at this and look at that. And she was like, could you stop it with that book? Same light. One person wanted it, one person didn't. And the path of the justice is a shining light that shineth more and more. The more you respond to the light, the more God gives you light. And your attitude towards the light determines everything. In verse 12, people are damned because they don't want the truth. In verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That's not a Calvinism verse. That's a Bible verse. That means God says, if you believe the truth, I'll separate you unto me. I'll take you out of Adam and put you in Christ if you believe the truth. And he celebrates that. He rejoices in that. Now let's go to chapter 3. Really quickly, not much to say in chapter 3. He just laid out a lot of truth. He's encouraged them. He's enlightened them. So then at the end, he exhorts them. He says, guys, let's start living better because we know what's coming. If we know this is coming, we need to live right. Here's some advice he gives. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, and this is tough. I'm going to tell you this is tough right now. In the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother, that's a saved person, that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, some churches want to say, see, traditions, that's not like traditions, like rituals, that's just like things that Paul taught us. Good habits, right? There's some good traditions in the Bible. Keep reading. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Here's the first thing he exhorts his people, the people to. Stop wasting your time with believers who've got no time for God. That's tough, 
but that's what the Bible don't say. Stop wasting your time with people walking out of order, whether it's heretical doctrine or a wicked life, withdraw yourselves from them. That's what he, hey, he's like, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'll sort it out. You worry about me. You get around people that are living right. You get around people that are going to church, that are believing the book, that are praying, that are doing the best they can. Nobody walks on water, but find the people that try and be with them. Stop wasting your time with the people that are nominal believers that say they got saved, that maybe really did get saved, but aren't living right, aren't going to church, don't care about what the Bible says, don't give a flip about what God thinks, just withdraw yourself. Don't hate them. Withdraw yourselves from them. That's, is that a hard verse to read? It's a hard verse to live. It's not a hard verse to read. Second piece of advice, verse 8. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail, night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, <laughs> but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. He's like, we could have stopped working and had you support us, but you know what? We wanted to show you how to live. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Second thing, stop using the Lord's coming as an excuse for your laziness. He says, hey, young man, get your lazy butt out of your bed and go to work. That's what he says. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Stop, oh, the Lord's coming back. I got to go out and witness. No, go out and witness to the people on your job. But until he comes back, get your butt out there and go to work. <laughs> he says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. <laughs> so much for welfare. I mean, you know, there's a place for all those things. But he's pretty hard on them. He's saying, hey, get up and, and do something. Now, it could be working for the Lord, working for, you, for yourself, working for your family, but be active, be industrious, you know, do something. Don't just sit around, well, the Lord's coming back. No, he says, that's the wrong thinking. Get out there, work. Don't use the Lord. People there were just being busybodies. They wanted a handout, and he's like, you're busybodies, you're in each other's business, but he says, in, verse, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, study to be quiet. Right? Remember that? 1 Thessalonians 4, I think 11. And here he says it again. With quietness, right? With quietness, they work and eat their own bread. It's good. It's a good thing. The Bible says, curse to the ground for your sake. Stop using the Lord's coming as an excuse for your laziness. And then finally, verse 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, watch this. Note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. These are believers he's talking about now. He says, stop fellowshipping with brethren who won't obey that book. When they do something wrong and they're approved for it and they're told time and again what the Bible says, that book says right there, don't fellowship with that person anymore. You might have to put them out of your church. You might have to put them out of your life. But God says, God, not me. Don't like that verse. Wish that wasn't in the Bible. But that verse says right there, have no company with him. That doesn't mean when you make a mistake, that means you're out of the church. But you're approved, you're told, you're warned, you're discipled, you're shown, and you're just like this <laughs> to God. You're just like, forget it. <laughs> I don't care what the Bible says. I'm doing wrong anyway. You're out. He says, you're out. Why? So that being disfellowshipped or being put away might make you ponder your stupidity. It might make you realize, what am I doing? What have I done? And you might be ashamed and repent. It's like the man in 1 Corinthians 5. They put him out. They wouldn't have company with him. Why? So he'd repent. Don't count him an enemy. Don't wish poor things on him. Don't wish his tires fall off his car when he's driving somewhere. Don't wish him evil. Count him as a brother, but just don't have company with him. You say, what? You say, that sounds harsh. I didn't write the Bible. 
That's Pauline doctrines in the New Testament church under grace. That's practical living. You know why? And I, look at me. Neither I nor the elders here have like scopes on our Bible that we're looking for the next person to put out. <laughs> it's like the last thing any real person of God wants to do. It gives you no joy when you have to do it and you wait till the absolutely last minute to have to do it. <laughs> I've been on those conversations when I was a deacon in Staten Island. I've had to be on some of them on this side of the bridge in New Jersey. Don't like them. Part of the ministry, I wish wasn't in the Bible, but it's there to protect the flock, to keep the body healthy. Because sometimes when, a, when appendage is so sick and infected, you just got to cut it off so the rest of the body can heal and it stops infecting the whole. Because you know why? You take a white glove, you drop a white glove in the brown mud. I've never seen the mud get white. The glove always gets dirty. And if you're getting ready to take off, and we're getting ready to take off, you might have to lose the dead weight. Have to let go of the dead weight, lay aside the sin and the weight that doth so easily beset us. Sometimes you just drop the weight so that you could reach new heights. So I just got one big idea from this book. If you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, glove always gets dirty. Always get, you never, you know, if I, uh, who's back there? Is that Connor back there? Come on down here, Connor. <clears throat> How many chairs you got back there, Josh? One? Is there another one back there? No, I'll just, I'll just use this one. All right. What do you think is going to be easier? Me? Pull Connor up here? Or Connor to pull me down. What do you think is easier? Don't really do it to me, man. I'm old. Right? It's real hard for me to pull him up. It's real easy for me to pull for him to pull me down. And that's how it is with, with Christians that don't want to live right. Thank you, Connor. Do a good give him a round of applause. That was a great job. Right? It's real easy. It's real easy for the wayward Christian to pull you down. I know you mean well, but it's real hard for you to pull that person up that wants nothing to do with God. It's real hard. So sometimes you just got to step away and give them to God and let God deal with them. So here's the one big idea from the Bible, from this book I want to just pull out. 2 Thessalonians 2, let's read 14 to 17. Whereunto he called you by our gospel <clears throat> to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. We've learned from this book that the church may not, is not going to have to endure the time period known as the Great Tribulation. We got that? We're not going through the time period in the future known as the Great Tribulation. But in verse 15 we do have to endure the experience of tribulation. Trial, affliction, heartache, difficulty, opposition. You may not experience the time period of great tribulation, but you will experience some great tribulation down here in experiences, in heartaches, in afflictions, in furnaces, in difficulties. So what do we do? Verse 15, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught. You have to hold the fort. You have to, as Pastor Mel said, just keep on keeping on. Just stand. And having done all, to stand. That's what he told you to do. Yeah, you're not going through the Antichrist and all that stuff, but you're going to take your lumps down here. You know what you do? Hold the fort. I'm coming. Hold the line. The battle's almost won. Keep on keeping on. We're almost home. That's the admonition of this book. Your endurance is not for salvation. Your endurance is to obtain the glory that God has reserved for you in his kingdom. So even though you're taking your lumps, even though it's tough out there, you know what he's saying? He's saying, stand fast, because if you're in a marathon, you might be turning the bend, and the finish line might be right there. You're going to quit now? You're in the fight. You're dodging, you're bobbing and weaving. You're taking your lumps. You're slipping a few jabs in yourself. Hey, the bell's about to ring. You want to throw in the towel now? saying, guys, keep on keeping on. Yeah. 
We're almost home. Stand fast. Hold fast. Because Jesus Christ has got this kingdom waiting for you, and he's just trying to see if you've got enough guts to make it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you today. We thank you today. Just uh, help us to live these things, Lord. Help us to believe these things, Lord. If there's something I said that's wrong, just correct me, Lord. And, but I pray, Lord, just we could take something out of this, something we understood, could go home with us, Lord, to keep on keeping on for you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.